and welcome to the Feeling Good Podcast, where you can learn powerful techniques to change the way you feel. I am your host, Rhonda Borowski, and joining me here in the Murrieta studio is Dr. David Burns. Dr. David Burns is a pioneer in the development of cognitive behavioral therapy and the creator of the new teen therapy. He is the author of Feeling Good, which has sold over 5 million copies in the United States and has been translated into over 30 languages. David is currently an emeritus adjunct professor of clinical psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine. Hi, David. Hello, Rhonda. We have two honored guests today. Of course, our um, fabulous frequent guest, uh, or maybe your uh, third, another co-host, Dave Frybush. I'll be whatever you need me to be, Rhonda. Oh, <laughs> don't tell my husband. <laughs> <laughs> Deal. <laughs> Hello, Dave. Hello, David. And we also have a really wonderful honored guest, Amir Sabori, who is an MD, PhD, and his specialty, he's a neurologist whose specialty is neuromuscular specialty. Yeah. And you treat people who have Lou Gehrig's disease? That's correct. Yes. And Amir was just telling us that he did his medical school training in Iran. That's correct, yeah. And then he went to Japan where he earned a PhD in cellular and molecular neuroimmunology. That's correct. Then you came to the United States for a postdoc. And you did, that's where you did your medical residency, correct, at UC San Diego? I did my residency in UC San Diego in neurology, yeah. But when I came first to the United States, I came as a scientist and I did research. So I, later I went to residency and did my uh, residency training in neurology in the United States. That's uh -huh. cool. yeah. And then you did a fellowship after your neurology residency yeah, at the correct. Washington University in St. Louis. That's correct, yeah. Nice. Yeah, thank you for introduction. Yes. So um, we have two really great endorsements to read first before we begin. We'll just do one on this podcast and one on the next. I was just joking around. Oh, okay. Do the little short one. Okay. So um, this is from Pam. And Pam wrote, I love your work, Dr. Burns. I discovered your book, Feeling Good, online after searching for help with my low self-esteem because I have been unsuccessful all my life with relationships. Looking for guidance on how to help myself, knowing what to do, but finding it hard to do. Your book covers my insecurities and is just fabulous, as my low moods are because of how I allow others to treat me. Thank you so much. I almost want to carry it with me always. Very grateful, Pam. I just say thank you, Pam, and, and to all of you who are sending in so many wonderful, encouraging comments, which I, I appreciate. I know Rhonda appreciates uh, two, um, one, one really neat thing happened this, this week. I, I noticed, I, I've been saying in general that if you like the podcast, to, to tell your friends because you're a form of, of, of marketing because I'm not real good at, at marketing. Hopefully that'll, that'll improve soon. But uh, right now it's, it's, it's word of mouth. And this week, all of a sudden, on two days, the hits on my website quadrupled from the previous record high, which was 2,500 hits a day, and we got uh, almost eight or, eight or 9,000 hits one day, wow. and almost as many the next day. Like, it just dwarfed uh, pre previous traffic. And the same on the podcasts, just the downloads just, just mushroomed two, two days this week, and they weren't even days that are supposed to be high. Usually, Mondays are a big podcast day, and then... Wednesday and Thursday just went went through the roof, and all we can figure 
is that one of you podcast listeners must have sent out to your emailing list. You must have a huge emailing list and told people to go to my website to the list of Feeling Good Podcasts uh, and probably sent the link. And then thousands of people went and did that. And I'm so grateful. If, if you know who you are who did this wonderful gift to us, please email me so I can thank you personally. But it also occurred to me that probably most of you listeners have email lists that you belong to. And no matter if they're plumbers or psychiatrists or music lovers, it's a sure certainty that a third of the people on your list on any given day are experiencing elevated symptoms of depression or anxiety or both. And so if you were to send them the link to www.feelinggood.com and tell them to go to the Feeling Good list of Feeling Good podcasts, uh, then that would benefit people because they're going to get all this help for free of charge and it would certainly help us grow, grow our, our market. So thank you. Thank you so, so much for, for, for that support, yeah, which is incredibly helpful yeah, it's and wonderful. Been amazing. And because of that, we'll go this month over a hundred thousand downloads wow. on the Feeling Good podcast for the, for the first time. Yeah, it looks, it's projected. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, but um, I well, promise... let me just say first that this is episode 173. I forgot to mention that. Oh, yeah, number 173. Now, this is a podcast I've, I've wanted to do with you, Amir, for, for some time. Mm -hmm. And uh, finally twisted your arm to, to get you to... Sure, it's to, my pleasure. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. And uh, I, I supervised Amir's wonderful wife, Sepeda, when she was a Stanford psychiatric resident. She's also an MD, PhD, and now she's on the faculty at, at Stanford. And uh, once she, you, you came on a hike when you were still living in, in I think, Washington or St. Louis. Yeah. And we really, we really hit it off. And then when you finally were able to come back here and reunite with Sepeda uh, after separation for academic necessity. It was just fantastic. And, and you were coming on, on the hikes and began to do some personal work as, mm -hmm. as we do. And then learning the five secrets of effective communication. And I just love working with you because one of my favorite things has been the, the, the role for human skills in doctors, in, in medical doctors. And we were never taught this in, in medical school. And it still isn't taught in any meaningful way. But how to really communicate with, with, with patients and how, how to make that doctor's bedside manner come to life in a really, really healing way. And so we've had so many fabulous uh, dialogues and uh, Rhonda made me promise not to say that you were one of the world's top neurologists. <laughs> Uh, top experts in these uh, rare joke. neuromuscular d disorders, and so I will not say that, I, uh, just as, as I promised. But uh, someone with, with less, uh, more, uh, more sophistication might might not say that. But but that that's that's really pretty much a, a true statement. I'm and sure yeah. your audience know that you make a lot of joke in your podcast. Yeah, so but they... this is this is not this is not one of my jokes. And, but I, I admire you as a friend, as, as a human being, and it's just incredible, the amazing 
skill that you brought, but one the first time you came on on a hike, you you were actually depressed, not clinically depressed or sobbing or something like that, but but feeling like a failure. That's and, right. And and one of the reasons was was because you're working every day with people with terminal illnesses, and your job is to tell them that this symptom that you have is an irreversible kind of hopeless neurologic disorder like the horrible Lou Gehrig's disease. And, and it was just killing you to be having to say this to people. And you felt guilty and ashamed and inadequate thinking that you had, you had nothing to offer your patients. And that was the first of, I would say, three amazing hikes, hikes that we had. Can, can you tell us uh, kind of how, how you experienced that and, and kind of what, what we came up with? Yeah. So first of all, I'd like to thank you uh, for everything and every help that you have uh, given to us and providing. I feel so fortunate to be able to know you and to work with you and learn from you uh, basically on a weekly basis during the wonderful uh, Sunday hikes. Um, yes, that's uh, what you mentioned is totally true. So I am a neuromuscular specialist and one of the patients that I see, one of the type of the diseases that I see is Lou Gehrig disease, which is a uh, basically a diagnosis with no cure. And um, in most cases, or I should say in all cases, if the diagnosis is uh, you know, definite, that means like sort of a death sentence to the patients. And I have, you know, I went to medical school and to residency and to fellowship and my goal, and I think that's probably true for uh, almost all physicians, is that to go and try to help the people, help the patients uh, who needs the, uh, who needs doctors. Uh, and what I uh, faced when you know I come to the real world and notice that with the ALS or Lou Gehrig disease patients. I felt that I am paralyzed, sort of. I tried to hide this part of my feeling in front of the patients. Uh, but and what I, were the feelings you were feeling you had to hide? Uh, I felt that I'm not helping them. I thought that what I'm doing, I'm with all of the training, is like what kind of change I'm doing. Uh, in these patients' lives because I'm not curing them. I basically do nothing. I felt uh, inadequate. I felt uh, guilty. Uh, sad. I depressed. felt sad and depressed and frustrated at myself sometimes. Um, anxious. And anxious to the patients. And I, yeah, I, I felt almost sometimes embarrassed that when somebody is like desperately needing my help and I'm not being able to provide that help that they they asked so it was it was very hard feeling for me uh, and i was carrying that uh, sad and frustrated and feeling inadequate um, or ineffective inefficient uh, with myself uh, to my home and you know to to the next day and that was part of my feeling and just to bring this alive a little bit for our listeners you can imagine being someone like Amir, probably a genius IQ or something way up there, studying in multiple different countries, getting PhD, MD, 
a star in molecular biology, molecular pathology, all this fantastic knowledge acquired for great difficulty, and then feeling I, I have nothing to offer. I'm inadequate. Yeah, I'm inadequate, and 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 just just feeling like feeling like a failure. So many of us feel like a failures. Right. Uh, so many people listening, but they don't have like multiple doctor's degrees and considered like among the top people in the world. But it was very real and powerful for you. And and the odd thing for me, it made me feel so close to you, and and feel so much deeper admiration because I was feeling, wow, that this this is the doctor you want to have, and and that you have so much to offer that you that you don't realize. Uh, to, to talk about where, where, where our thinking went on that hike and where, where, where you came out on that. Um, I, I think what I realized that I, uh, I realized that I care about patients. That's the reason that I was suffering from. And the you know, the feeling of inadequate or embarrassed or guilty all came from because I do care about my patients. And what I realized is that, you know, just working with you and from the other uh, hikers that, you know, I, it was very eye-opening for me that they were impressed at how much I care about my patients. And I think uh, what I realized that patients wants to once they know that I'm listening to them and I care about them that I have feelings and I have feeling uh, so then it means a lot for them rather than me being like you know curing them I think it, of course they would have liked and I would have wished that there was a cure and but I think at that point for them just connecting with the patients was crucially important, which I was not, like, you know, it was not in my equ equation yeah. uh, before talking to yeah. and listening to the, you know, other uh, people. Yeah, the paradox was that you had everything to offer and thought you had nothing to offer. And when you came to that discovery, it was so moving for me. When I was a medical student, as you know, I was probably, I don't want to be narcissistic and then say I was the worst Stanford medical student of all time, but I was certainly very close to that. And I was just a horrible, disrespectful, I, I cut classes, I was awful. I, I never should have gone to medical school, but the one person I really loved was Alan Barber. And he was the chief of outpatient medicine. And he, he discovered what you discovered, that the, for all the technology that you have, most people need something more than that. And the people who came to the Stanford outpatient clinic came because no one could diagnose them. Uh, and they came from all over the Western United States, the most difficult patients, and almost none of them had anything wrong with them. They just had chronic pain and dizziness. And, and he wrote a book called Caring for Patients. You talk about caring to show doctors how sometimes you have to let go of the medical model and take a human model and ask these patients what's going on in your life that, that, that's been bothering you, the time the pain came on or the time the, the, dizziness, uh, the dizziness came on. And uh, we saw many of those patients, 50% of them recover entirely from this chronic dizziness or back pain or belly pain or whatever they had once they began to talk about that they were lonely because the kids went to, to college. I had a, a, a patient 
uh, who was going to be the first open heart surgery patient at Stanford, mm -hmm. and it was going to be very risky because he had intractable angina, I see. and uh, and it was felt felt to be hopeless, and uh, so he was going to be ex experiment to see if you know move the arteries around in the heart. And that that time, I mean, it was brand new; no one even knew if if he would survive, and 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 then when I was talking to him, he he, he was a mailman, this, this black mailman. And I, I just got a funny feeling talking to him because he, he was in so much chest pain, he, he couldn't do, do his route or anything. And, 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 and then he, I, I said, you know, just is there things bothering you or you know, in your life? He says, oh, my wife bosses me around and the kids boss me around and it seems like everybody's putting me down all the time. And, and, and just on impulse, it was just a stupid thing to say. I, I, I said, do you, well, do you know the difference between a, a Negro and a black man? And he, he says, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you sound more like a Negro than a, than a black man. And this all probably sounds horribly politically correct, but I said, you, you know, why are you letting all these, 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 these people, you know, put you down like this? And, uh, you know, I just, I just felt so much compassion for him. And then I presented him to this attending Mark Perlroth was a young genius from National Institute of Mental Health, and he was a cardiology young up-and-coming star at Stanford, and, and, and I had to present to him. And I, I said, there's just something about this that doesn't add up. And, and Mark looked at his EKGs and said, you know, this guy never had a heart attack. This was all incorrectly diagnosed, mm. and he had a, a, an infection of the uh, pericardium. He had pericarditis, I see. and he, he, he shouldn't have uh, open-heart surgery. This would be a huge mistake. Mm. And so we went in, we talked to him for, for, for a little bit, and I said, why don't you know, he had an appointment the next week, and Mark said, you know, do as Dr. Burns says, you know, tell your wife that you're you're unhappy and that you love her, but you don't like getting bossed around all the time. And then bring bring your pills in with you next week. And he came back the next week, and it was odd. He says, "Doctor, I I think I've been cured. My heart pain huh. disappeared entirely." And uh, I just to told my wife that you know I loved her, but I, I didn't like being put down all all the time. And they brought in his medicines, and he had a bag. He must have had two thousand pills in there. He was oh, taking no. like thirty eight medicines a day or something wow. and so we just had a ceremony and just poured them into the wastebasket <laughs> and, but you know it was that that thing that some you know we we got trained so much in the technology and who in the world could have more technology than you amir and yet you found that your heart had had so so much to offer well we want to make this about you and you had two two other fantastic hikes and and experiences with with your patients and learning the the human the human side of of, of medicine and, and yeah. neurology, but David, that was a really beautiful story that you told, and that we, you know we all can hear how much yeah. that patient really touched you. Yeah, yeah, you can see in your face. Probably yeah. the audience don't, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I, I think what is lacking in uh, the training of uh, medical doctors in different countries. Uh, uh, is that we learn about all like you know physiology and anatomy and how to treat how to do the surgery but what at least i have not uh, any training and you know the, was how to communicate with the patients during medical school 
uh, or even during residency. I, we learn we, from watching you know, our mentors and professors, but nobody comes and tells us like exactly what does, what does empathy. I actually learned the empathy what does that mean after graduation from my residency? Wow. I didn't know what is the you know definition of empathy and what is this empathy. Or I heard the first time from you what is like you know thought empathy and feeling empathy. And I'm sure there are like you know thousands of doctors who don't know about this. We learn about how to treat the. But Amelia, can I yeah. ask you a question? Yeah. So when you were first learning, because I'm not a medical doctor, mm -hmm. when, when you were first learning how to take a medical history when your patient was coming in for an intake, for example, yeah, you weren't taught about how to make a connection or, or no. provide empathy to them no, as they that... were telling you their their medical stories. Now it sounds like really you know. Uh, that's really surprising. Really surprising, but you know, to me, it was like you know, get the story, get the facts. I think, as a medical student and resident, you want to get the facts and come to the conclusion and give the diagnosis and give the treatment. There's no room for you know. They, I mean, they don't say that they, you don't have to empathize with the patients, but I mean, there was there's no no equation for empathy during the trainings like if you look at like you know medical textbook when you read about like you know the different diseases there's nothing written about you have to do empathy i think maybe in the first chapter of the textbooks there are something or if you are interested then you may read but there's some textbook yeah, or something yeah that's it you know what my first job out of graduate school i worked at the rape treatment center in san francisco and residents came through to provide the medical care and so someone would be raped and they would call the police and then they would, police would bring them to our clinic. And all the residents, I'm sad to say, I, I have had the exact same experience working with them. And they would come in and they would say, you know, here's this, you know, usually a woman who was raped. And they would be really uncomfortable. And they, they you know, for a while they would, they would literally say, what do I say to her? And I'd have to say to them, okay, walk in the room and say, I'm sorry this happened to you. And then start asking them your medical questions. And then they would walk in and say exactly that. I'm sorry this happened to you. And then go right into sort of robot mode of gathering yeah. the data. It yeah. was it was a sad aspect. Yeah, I think yeah, I think I at least I'm talking about myself and my own training. I think it was very robot like get the f facts from the patients to make it change in their life, just come with the conclusion and just like they you know. Well you have a, two other amazing stories and it what it's just been a joy to me to see you're learning the five secrets of effective communication, developing phenomenal empathy and communication techniques and using them not only in your interactions with patients but, but with colleagues. It's like having your your third PhD, you might say. And tell tell us about a couple more of the amazing uh, experiences you've, you've had. Yeah, this is a recent patient. Basically, he was in his late uh, 20s. He came and, you know, uh, I should say that after our training, and I work at Kaiser, and they teach us how to do empathy, etc. But this is, uh, you know, uh, this is and based on both of these. When I went and see this patient, so I opened the door, I greet, and I just like, you know, try to uh, break the ice and talk. And I greeted with this patient who just opened the door. He had a dark eyeglass and I introduced myself and greeted and smiled and he just, you know, shrugged his shoulders. And I 
usually ask from my patients the first question after you know this icebreaker that you know what is your goal from this clinic visit what would you like to achieve what you want to get out of this hour and he just you know uh, even didn't make it eye contact with me and said i do not know what i'm here and it was very awkward uh, conversation after that and i you know i tried to uh, understand him and I told him that yeah can you tell me more and said he said I think my primary care is sick and tired of me and that's his reason for sending me to you because he doesn't know what to do with me and I said wow that must have you know sound like very uh, painful to you and I don't want to go to the details of like how the conversation went and he he told me that I uh, I, I don't know why I'm here and I said that I, he, and then after that he said you know what I think I'm like wasting my time and money with you to be honest and and then I tried to be respectful to his time and money and said that, you know, I, 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 am, I really like, you know, like helping you, uh, but I would like to be respectful to you. And if you feel strongly that this visit will not be helpful, I can, you know, I can ask them to give back your copay and go. And he told me, see, even you don't want to see me. You, you are not interested in me. And then it started like that and long story short he was a uh, you know he was not working he was in rehab he had severe uh, sleep problems and uh, daily headache very bad headache he couldn't keep a job an addiction and addiction but he was in rehab in and yeah. out so what i did it was not very easy to be honest it was a challenging it was patient. a challenging patient but i use all of the you know the thought empathy and the disarming techniques and the feeling empathy i could i tried stroking. to do my best stroking and everything and at the end of the visit you know it, it this i forgot to tell so he started crying like from the very beginning so when i started and he said oh my god i've never cried in other doctors visit i so strange i don't know why i'm crying and you know it went like that and i what i did i tried to understand and listen and do empathy it went it, it finished and i thought i wasn't honestly sure that how did i do i thought that he will be like you know not very happy because i was offering help and said see you are not even helping me so like i'm at like volleyball you are just put, put, you know sending me to somebody else so he went and after the just maybe like an hour after he left the clinic he wrote me that i just wanted to say thanks for listening to me today you are the first kaiser doctor i've ever felt who cared about me and my condition it means a lot to me i'm actually hopeful and he wrote this so and i was like you know very touched and you know uh, very happy but I did not know I basically did nothing I thought that I did nothing for this patient I told him that you know you are going to see I'm going to refer you to a pain doctor you know, for I'm going to refer you to a sleep doctor and then if your sleep gets better your headache is 
will most likely get better. That was like my final conclusion and advice for the patient. I felt that I did nothing for the patient, but this is what he felt. And what I did, I just did the empathy and, you know, the disarming and, you know, I mean, the story is that how using these techniques, which we never, I, I was never learned in the medical school, how they are affecting patients' quality of life. And, you know, if he's hopeful, then he's going to be proactive and go do something. And I think that, that, that was, you know, what I learned. That was my real experience recently. I love that story, and there are two takeaway messages from, from my point of view. One, one is it sounds like what's happening, you've been a fantastic technician from the time you were a brilliant medical student, PhD student, but now you're moving beyond technician uh, to healer uh, and, and by bringing the human dimension and, and specifically by using the five secrets of effective communication, which, by the way, is hard to learn. And you've come on many hikes and really worked at mastering, mastering these skills. Another, uh, which I love to say, and that's why we're doing this, this podcast, because there's a lot of doctors, human beings in general, who, who really, really need these, these, these skills. And that the other thing that you said, you, you gave him nothing. Yeah, I, that was my feeling, really. I thought that I did nothing for this man. Yeah, and that's what I call the five secrets, the nothing technique. And we've talked about this on our recent podcast on how to help and how not to help. Right. And that you give the patient nothing. You zero, you give them zero, but zero in on what they're saying. Show an openness to, 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 to what they have to say. Disarm them. Ask questions. Give, give them a great audience and, and give them nothing and in giving them people nothing we're often giving giving people every, everything everything something he'd never experienced from any other kaiser doctor because he's probably an irritating individual i i have a right to throw stones because i myself am a very irritating individual <laughs> as rhonda knows so well <laughs> but um, uh, but, but now I don't even remember what I was going to say. I'm, I'm demented and, and, and irritating. Well, here's but, this really challenging yeah, patient. Yeah, a challenging patient, and, and you'd listen. And you listen to him, yeah. and you're feeling like, oh, I'm, I'm not giving him anything. But really, you're giving him your heart, and you're yeah. giving him your ear. Yeah. And he walked out yeah. and said, wow, I, no one's ever given me that before. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's just a beautiful thing. And he doesn't get it from anyone else. That's what I meant. Like, he's probably turning everyone off because he's whining, complaining, criticizing. So everyone gets turned off, try, try, tries not to get doctors, rid of Not just his doctors, everyone in his life, you're saying. Huh? You're not saying just his doctors, but everyone in everyone his life. Everyone in his life. Yeah. And so that might have been the first moment of intimacy he's, he, he's ever had, or the first in years, if not, not decades. Uh, but I think it says something also, too, about you, Amir, and my experience of you on the hike is um, your kindness and warmth. Humility. And humility. Gentleness. Yes. My experience. You are stroking me. Then I will open up more. <laughs> yeah. Tell us another story. Or are you done with this one? Yeah, I think, I think what I learned is just to listen and then he felt that I'm caring. Mm. I think that was like missing because I tried my best. And, and then, you know, he got, he thought that I am caring about him and he was hopeful. I think that was the, but you, I mean, you weren't pretending to hope 
I was yeah, not. I mean, you were yeah, pretending to care yeah. in order to manipulate him. Yeah, yeah, that's Or to right. get him to be quiet or blah, blah, blah. You were bona fide actually caring. Yeah, yeah I did. Yeah, I, I, I was caring. How did that make you feel to get that email from him? It felt me a lot. Actually, I saw it, it, it made, that made my day, I should say. Uh, and, you know, this is somewhat related story. I was in a dinner with my two of my residency friends from UC San Diego, and they are like internists, hospitalists. I asked them last night that how, how's it going? What kind, you know, how's your life? How do you like, what do you dislike with your, pay, your work? And then they said that the patient, the situations which are patients drug addict and come and ask for like, you know, difficult patient, that's the most difficult part of my job, how to communicate with these patients. So then they said that we never had, we, I talked about, you know, how you can, you know, listen to them and empathy. And then we have, we said, we never had this training. So many doctors i'm sure they they have no clue they may have not even heard of like how to you know listen what is active listening what disarming is thought empathy disarming so that's why that not only affects the patient care but also that's the hardest part of being a doctor which is you cannot communicate and they complain to you and they are unhappy you're unhappy so if somebody like drug addict which like this patient who is happy and grateful and tells you that makes my day too and i feel like i'm doing something although i you know i didn't feel so but apparently i did one, so one of the I, I feel like underneath some people hate me for this but i feel like underneath the techniques we teach in team cbt or are, are spiritual ideas that these are all spiritual techniques and and one of them is is that uh, that we're one that that's the kind of a mystical the universe is one we're all one and i never knew what that meant because i said well it's not true that we're all one because i'm david right and what is this pan and no one ever called me pan and no one ever called this David, like we're separate, see? So I can never understand what does it mean that the universe is one? It's just like some mystical mumbo jumbo. But then when we hear your story, that you and the patient were one because in giving to him and giving him joy and feeling cared about, then you receive joy. That's right, yeah, uh, that's correct. Yeah. And, and that when you don't handle it well, and the patient goes away, or, or, or your loved one goes That's away it. angry, mm -hmm. irritable, uh, then, then you feel that same burden, then you're carrying that, that, that yeah, same fight. It's, it's a drain. Instead of being enthusiastic and exhilarated. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And fed. So it's just not a technical thing for physicians who might be listening, but for, but for everybody. And it's not just a, me a methodology of communication techniques, it's a spiritual thing too. Well, you had one more yeah. uh, mm -hmm. amazing story about when you then became enlightened and you were at the lake today on the hike and began walking across the water. And, and that really <laughs> impressed me. <laughs> that did impress all the people who were fishing. <laughs> and I droned. <laughs> so the th this is also a very common challenge uh, when doctors, you know, do with good intention for the patients and something horrible happens 
And oh, that's yeah. a very devastating situation. I'm sure any doc, every doctor who is listening uh, have some stories to tell. So this is a uh, recent patient of mine, another recent patient of mine. She was in her early 20s and she came with severe acute onset weakness with pain and was uh, diagnosed with, you know, she has uh, uh, addiction to alcohol. And then everybody thought that her disease, her weakness is because of the alcohol and said that you have neuropathy, go home, just don't drink. And I was contacted and, you know, because of, you know, alcohol neuropathy doesn't cause like severe acute onset weakness in leg, one leg and then not the other. So long story short. You, you just for the listeners, uh, one great thing about a good neurologist is you can tell from the history when a diagnosis is correct and incorrect. And you were saying that this cannot be due to her her drinking, yeah. the, the, the way the, the uh, weakness is, is shifting from leg to leg, this is a different and organic uh, cause, uh, another organic cause. That's correct. So she, she actually had an inflammation in her peripheral nerves, which caused like basically destroying her nerves. And I treated her with steroids, with uh, strong steroids. And then I explained to her, you know, the benefits and risks and, you know, and then she went home. She, she was not able to sorry, walk. the benefit and risks of what? Of the medications. Of the meds. So when she went home and then got medication, she was actually like almost completely cured in terms of her weakness. She wasn't able to walk when she came in to see me. And then she actually went back to work. Uh, and then she restarted drinking also heavily. heavily and and then she after like you know uh, several months she came to me and when I, when I wa watched her so she had a very awkward type of walking you know basically limping in one side and then in the middle what when we were talking in the middle of like this visit and prior so she had fracture in her uh you know her bone her feet and then i thought that i used to think that oh this is probably because of the fracture but when i saw her she had like you know she couldn't extend the hip and i thought that oh my god this is like a side effects of the medication steroids and what happened i thought immediately that her femur bone like the femoral head bone collapsed that's the top of the leg where it joins into the, the hip yeah so basically so both of the bones like the hip bone like collapsed and then isn't that horrible wow yeah it was Sounds incredibly painful and, and then i got could she get out of bed she was able to walk but she was walking like you know awkward uh like and what we call antalgic pain, which means that you try to walk to make it like less painful, but you limp basically. And then I, I told her that this could be complication of the medication, but I need to do a x-ray to make sure this is it. So I felt like, you know, you ask, how did I feel? I felt so bad and so sad that I actually down, like, walk, you know, coming back home, I got, like, very bad headache because of what I felt so bad. And I felt like I'm, like, you know, I felt guilty. I, I felt that I'm not a 
good doctor. I felt that I should have, this shouldn't have happened. I took all of the blame to myself. I felt incompetent. And also I felt scared too, because they know me. I think I knew that they know me and they, they know that I care about them. But if they know that this is maybe because of the complications of the medication, then they say that, yeah, they could sue me basically. And I had like very bad feeling. And uh, when I came and worked with you in the hike and I realized that, you know, it's like maybe my cognitive distortion or generalization that I'm like, like incompetent because something happened and, uh, and I was, you know, blaming to myself, not seeing the positives and all of those. So when I, it made me feel better and I went to see her, I asked her to come and see me. And I was prepared to, you know, to be, you know, accept what is my responsibility and what has happened. And I express my own feeling. I feel statements of what happened. And then I was anxious too. Uh, how, however, I, I think, I don't think I have shared this part with you. So it, when she came with her mom and I told her that, you know, uh, there, there is a, there is a whole, you know, different uh, um, skill set that I have learned from you. Uh, it's about how to give a bad news. And I gave, gave, gave that bad news to her and um, try to be empathic with her. Uh, so she, it went, finished like very, very well. So she understood, her mom understood. I think they, I did not feel that they had any like negative feeling against me. Uh, I think, which is true too, because I told her that this could be because of uh, uh, medication or because of the alcohol. And I told her that I should have told you that if you drink alcohol, this is going to happen to you. And I'm sorry, I didn't tell you. And she said that you did tell us. You told us. I for, I had forgot about. Yeah, she came to your defense. Yeah, she came to defense, defend me. I mean, it's. I think this happens a lot to the patients. And then what I have learned, and I think most doctors know, when the doctor, the patients sue or get angry, mad at patients, at the at doctors, it's not about what you did. It's about how you come across and how you yeah. empathize with them. Or how yeah. do you understand them? If you are cold and say, you know, like that thing happens, sorry. Or you, so you defend yourself. You defend yourself of... or, you know, then yeah. or hide or don't bring it up and then blame others. So I think it's the, it's just the opposite of what happened. Yeah. So you want someone to care, the compassion. Yeah, yeah exactly. So if you feel that you care. So hungry for compassion. Yeah. And, uh, uh, I, I once treated, I might have told you, a man was referred to me and said, this is America's top malpractice attorney. And he specialized in suing doctors. And he had lost only one case in his entire career. Uh, and so I, I showed he was very interested in the five secrets of effective communication and the disarming technique mm -hmm. and how you yeah. accept the truth and criticism. And I, I, I told him, my students and colleagues are always saying, if, if I use these five secrets and I agree with the patient who's criticizing me, both in medicine side or the psychology side, psychiatry side, won't I just open myself up for, for uh, lawsuits? 
He said, well, I'll give you the answer, David, but I don't want you to tell your colleagues uh, because if they know the answer, I'll be out of business. <laughs> but the answer is, is, is if doctors learn, like you've learned, the five secrets of effective communication and you find truth in, in, in what the patients tell you, he said, I, I'd be out of business. <laughs> and if you ever had to go and testify in court and you use the five secrets against some aggressive attorney cross-examining you and you disarm and stroke, a jury will never, never find you, never find you guilty. He says people almost never sue due to malpractice. They only sue for one reason. The doctor wouldn't listen. And then they come to me. I have a way of making doctors listen. Nice. It was so interesting. And your, your story is a beautiful example of, of that. And so there's a, a fantastically important bottom line to today's podcast, which uh, Rhonda will now reveal. <laughs> you know, we've spent a lot with, with Fabrice in episodes 65 to 70 and a very other various other times we've talked about the technique of the, how do you learn the five, what is the five secrets? How do you learn the five secrets and how difficult is it? And I think, Amir, this is a really lovely, I mean, lovely is so milk toast, but this is a really powerful example of how you use the five secrets in real life. In with challenging patients or when you've made a mistake or maybe it was a mistake but when you feel like you've done something wrong and how effective and important it is you know and I think it's great to have a lot of these different examples so in the medical profession we're gonna have other people talking about it with you know Amy Amy um, uh, talked about it within a high school setting and and I think it's really important for people to hear how the five secrets actually work yeah I'm just so proud to have you on today's podcast as my friend and a, an esteemed colleague and just really want to thank you for opening our hearts up and our minds as, as well. I, I would like to thank you so much for everything and I it's you know what I learned uh, five effective of uh, com, uh, effective communication uh, it has actually transformed my practice how I communicate and connect with my patients it not only changed their affected their life it affects my life too i when they are unhappy oh yeah it reflects to me yeah, and i get unhappy yeah right so yeah I'm like, like what you said, you're, you're yeah warm. and then you take it home and then so, your family and then, is unhappy and yeah. then you don't like your job because patients are complaining but if you feel make them feel better then you know everybody's happy and i think this is uh, very important. This is like a gap in, uh, unfortunately, in our training. And I wish uh, we, I could have learned earlier, or I wish my colleagues now, Mir, learned about this. Do you think all this. medical students need to learn the five secrets of effect? Uh, definitely. I think not only they need to learn. I think they 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 need to know that this is lacking, and they need to learn, and they need to practice. Uh, and That's to be supervised, easy. yeah, yeah, to, to because this is crucially important uh, in daily practice. Because I think most doctors uh, they know how to treat like pneumonia or you to know migraine, CHF, exactly. But so that's not the problem. The problem is that they know they don't know how to connect and communicate with the patients yeah. and make them feel listened. Can I, can I just jump in yeah. with a question? Um, You've been talking too much. I've been talking too much. Um, so a long time ago, I, I took the, the EMT course. And as part of it, you had to go out on a ride-along um, with the emergency responders. Oh, and so, yeah. um, so I remember once there, we went in to this um, apartment, and there was a, an old 
man on the ground and he had a heart attack or something. And so they told me, okay, why don't you go do chest compressions? Which basically meant the guy was dead because they were having, <laughs> they were having like this guy. So, but you still do the chest compressions and we were going to the hospital. And I remember when we got to the hospital, there was a nurse who greeted us and she asked how old the man was. And one of the, the uh, paramedics said, you know, like 78 or something. And she like kind of jumped for joy or something. And I, I asked her later, like, you know, what, what happened? And she said, oh, we had a bet on how old this guy was going to be. And, oh, yeah, um, yeah. and this person's uh, family was following us, you know, so they oh, kind of wow. saw that. And um, I was asking one of the firemen afterwards, like, what do you think of that? And he was like, look, if, if you ever see the stuff we see all the time, like, you just have to distance yourself from it. This is how you stay sane. And so I'm curious just, you know, briefly, because I know it's, it's the end of this podcast, but I mean, when you're doing the five secrets and particularly for Amir, you know, with the, with the population that you're seeing, like, how do you find that balance between being empathic and compassionate and not getting pulled into um, perhaps like the, the difficulty that the patients, the pain. Are, you know, the pain of the patients. And I think, I mean, I think it's important, to, you know, like the doctors that refuse to empathize, they might not be awful people. It might just be that's their way of protecting themselves from the everyday realities of of dealing with people who are going through a lot of, you know, very, very difficult things. So that's kind of the end of the podcast, but I'm curious, any thoughts on that? Uh, I think it's a very, very difficult, complicated situation. I think if you don't know, just my experience, if I don't know the how to communicate with the patients, then I carry more pain with my, with myself. And then in order to protect myself, I have to disconnect myself from the patients. That's why that's the end of it so because you cannot survive having that much pain and caring with you all the time but if you effectively communicate with the patients and make them feel better you look at look at them as a human being and do your best it's a very very different experience the amount of pain you may take with you but it's not like it's not it's not it's uncomparable with it's like the a joyous pain it's a joyous pain yeah mm -hmm. and then it makes you humble it makes me humble to you know it becomes philosophical of like you know seeing that you know i'm not able to change the world but i'm doing my best for every individual patient to provide the care that they need i may not be able to cure this lou Gehrig disease but I've done my best and I'm doing not only to provide the best care in terms of what they need physically, in terms of, say, physical therapy, etc., but I, I'm on there to listen and care and make them feel and hurt, not the patient, but also the family. Then, then what comes back is the joy and grat gratitude from the patients and we become very close. So that makes my life better too. Yeah. We'll talk about this a little bit more, maybe on the next podcast. But that was a wonderful today. question. I yeah. love that question, and I love your answer. I mean, yeah, that's, that's very powerful. It's like a paradoxical. Yes, another yeah. paradoxical that's, for it's you. It's a paradox, <laughs> but I think in general, it's not yeah. just doctors, but that all yeah. of us are closed off. We're asleep most of the time, uh, and then we look at the surface. See, I'm looking at all these surfaces here. But underneath, uh, there, there can be tears and, and real pain that, that we hide from ourselves. And, and that yeah. people hide from us, and that uh, tuning into that, uh, if, if we could really tune into that, we might be crying all day long yeah. to see how much pain that people have, but it would be a joyous uh, kind of... Uh, I mean, you were, you were 
on the verge of tears or with talking yeah. about that patient earlier. Yeah, that yeah. Patient earlier. yeah. And, yeah, and that was like just a, a just a, a wonderful, huh. a wonderful thing. And then I didn't hear from him for about six months, and then I got a, a notification that his 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 son had died unexpectedly, oh. and could I come to the funeral? And and so I I went to the went to the funeral and then uh, someone came up and tapped on my shoulder and and said this fellow whose name I don't even remember Jerome or something uh, seems to be having a heart attack uh, out by his son's casket or something like that could he needs he said he needs your help and once again he was walling off the mm. tears I went and hugged him I I I, I said I, I think you. You really need to, to 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 let go and 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 let the tears out. And then he started sobbing, grabbed me. We we just were just you know kind of hugging and and crying together. And I said, "Thank you, doctor. My my pain has just disappeared again." Hmm. But uh, but it it it's I'm, my only sadness is that it's hard to be that open that we spent so much of our lives dead. Uh, asleep, and then every now and then we, we, we wake up. Uh, well, time for commercial message uh, at the end of the pod podcast. If if you're uh, looking for more help with this, you could pick up my book "Feeling Good Together" and do the written exercises. I'll put a link to it in in the pot in the show notes, or you could go to my website, feelinggood.com, and find that book on the books page. It's very inexpensive at uh, Amazon. And then if you're a therapist wanting further training, I'm gonna give on February 9th, a wonderful uh, one day program with my most fantastic colleague, Jill Levitt, Dr. Jill Levitt, a one day workshop on dealing with therapeutic resistance in, in your patients. I think it's the most important topic in all of psychotherapy. And if you're interested, go to my website, feelinggood.com and go to the workshop tab and you'll get all the all the details but a one, it's a one day program you can come in in Palo Alto in person or you can join live streaming online from anywhere in the world thank you Amir mm, for, thank you so it was much. just yes, so thanks great for today yeah, yeah. Mm. wow thank you thank you, you, yeah. <laughs> and thank you to all our listeners till next time steve was going to be on our next podcast amir just asked Steve, as an audience member, how did you feel about this podcast? And I'm a I'm a patient now, uh, and I was uh, laying down on the floor crying, Amir, uh, wishing I had a doctor who cared about me like you, that uh, someone would uh, ask me those questions and just be concerned and uh, look at me besides as something besides a body with cancer. Yeah. Uh, that it would be a human being it was uh, overwhelming. Thanks so much. Sure, I must have been very, very difficult for you. It's, it's that seems like you have uh, had doctors who didn't you you didn't feel that they didn't care enough about you. Yeah, I, I think I've had really good technicians, like David was saying, uh, that they've been good technical, uh, but I haven't been. In in last year and a half, I can actually remember um, a two 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 times where someone actually just asked me how I was doing as a 
human being. Yeah. And one was a pharmacist. So it was, you know, it was shocking. I, was, I wanted, I told him, I want your address because I'm going to write you a note, a thank you note that you called me up to follow up and see how I'm actually feeling. So, yeah. So I think you're, I think uh, you're good, good technicians, but uh, as, as a patient, I, I really just want to be cared for. Felt, felt lacking. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your experience. Yeah, and uh, and your feeling. Well, thank you. And I, I, I wish I wish you were an oncologist. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Thank you. This has been another episode of the Feeling Good podcast. For more information, visit Dr. Burns' website at feelinggood.com, where you will find the show notes for this episode under the podcast page. You will also find archives of previous episodes and many resources for therapists and non-therapists. We welcome your comments and questions. If you want to support the show, please share the podcast with people who might benefit from it. You could also go to iTunes and leave a five-star rating. The theme music is Gypsy Jazz in Paris, 1935, composed and performed by Brett Van Donsel. I am your host, Rhonda Borowski. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I invite you to join us next time for another episode of the Feeling Good Podcast.